My man, shouts Paco. Then he jumps up and channels his old mentor, Jerome Robbins, as he glides past the file cabinets. For a moment, I think he'll dance on the coffee table, even though he's 72. Chill, I say, but I'm smiling. He slides back into his seat and leans toward me. So, where are we taking her for this date of ours? Uh, how should I dress? I'm at Donovan's Pub in Woodside, which some claim is home to the best burger in the city. But I didn't come for food or drink. It's a retirement party at the FAA's mandatory age of 56 for Andy, the guy who took over my shift when I was removed from my post. Hanging with drunk controllers from the garbage is the last thing I feel like doing, but it would be poor form not to appear. I find the private party in the back room. It's free wings and potato skins, but a cash bar, and I order myself a seltzer. Andy spots me pronto, which means I'm free to leave any time now, even though I just arrived. We chat about his new beach house in the Outer Banks. Of course, two aviation geeks can't discuss the Outer Banks without mentioning Kitty Hawk, and soon we're considering how Wilbur and Orville lived such very different lives. With one dying in 1912 and the other in 1948. The kid brother lived to see Chuck Yeager break the sound barrier. I wish Andy well. Mo invites me to join the union reps at a small table, but before I can even plan an exit strategy, Bob M. quietly asks if I've got a moment. The union reps exchange meaningful glasses as I follow him out. We wind our way through the party, back past the bar, and onto Roosevelt Avenue. Finally, he turns to me, beer bottle in hand. You're looking squared away these days, Mike. Well, I've taken up boxing. He winces. I got my ass kicked doing that at Annapolis. I smile politely, eager to move on. So, you know, I've been back and forth. But after a few Amstels, I figured, what the hell? I hope you'll listen to what I'm going to say. The seven train screeches overhead and route to City Field. I'm listening. You've really manned up. Since last summer. Your record is spotless. Thanks. I mean, considering I was never formally trained in changing printer cartridges. He laughs. See, still got that wise-ass edge. But you've toned it down. You do whatever you're asked. You never complain. Your work's been excellent. Nobody can say a bad word about you. I decide to laugh, too. I hope all the fools realize I suffer them much better now. Bob M. sucks his Amstel bottle. So here's what I'm saying. But don't respond. Just think about it. Go home. Mull it over. Just think. Okay. I ponder the agenda. The new movie about Sully Sullenberger's runway four departure going into the Hudson River? For the record, I was off that day. The congressional hearings on privatizing air traffic control? The governor's plans for the LGA makeover? He draws a deep breath. You ought to consider a transfer. Someplace. Well, any place. Someplace where you'd be a bigger frog in a smaller pond. I lean back, resting my foot against the outer wall of Donovan's and staring at the theater that became a church. 
why would I want to leave one of the busiest facilities in the United States and go somewhere smaller? Because your career is dead here, Bob M. blurts out. I mean, not officially, but I'm talking no ranks again, just laying it out. You've got too much baggage here. Everybody you work with looks at you and thinks about one lousy fucking afternoon. Forget all the thousands of perfect shifts. And here's the thing. Even if you're up for promotion, you'll never get it. Of course, everybody will scream, how can you promote that guy after what he did? I find I have no response. I'm not angry and I'm not ungrateful, but he's hit me with a lot to digest. And for years now, it seems like I've been continually hit with a lot to digest. Paco has this theory. He calls it his stool philosophy. Life is a stool, and most people have legs for relationship, career, family, pursuits, pets, whatever you care about. You can have one wobbly leg, maybe two, but you can survive on three or more wobbly legs. And LaGuardia has been my most stable leg for a year now. Until this custody drama plays out, I can't handle more instability. Thanks. I'll think it over. Bob M. shakes my hand. I'm not bullshitting you. I'm trying to help. Now I remember something. So, I have a question. What's that? He drains the bottle. Last year, the hearing, I heard you went to the mat for me. I was on my way out, and you saved my whole freaking career. What's left of it? I stare for a moment. He's a bit flushed, and his eyes have narrowed from afternoon drinking. Why'd you do it? Bob M. smiles. I owed you one. Me? You owed me? He teeters for a moment, more shit-faced than I realized. Yeah. That time two years ago, when you made me look like an asshole in front of the whole shift about babysitting my kids. Shit. I was pissed at you. Really pissed. For a long time. And then it finally hit me. Why was I so pissed? Because you were right, for God's sake. You can't babysit your own kids. You're absolutely right. I laugh at this, and Bob M. joins me. Hell, my wife wants you over for dinner. These days, I play golf one Saturday a month. The other days, I'm with them. Donna finally asked me, what happened? She thought I ended an affair or something. Finally, I told her, Mike fucking Mullen happened. Your name is a punchline in my marriage now. Another seven train screeches by, cars rattling as if they'll fall right off the elevated tracks and splatter on our heads. Well, I'm glad I helped. He asks if he can buy me a beer, but I pass. Ben has news, even if he buries it behind updates about his friend Charlie's new bicycle and the blimp sailing over the park today when he was with Mommy. I'm serving him spinach pie and fruit cup and what we call corn on Thai cob and pouring 2% milk into a sippy cup. After I get everything onto the table and Ben slides in, he chatters something about the baby 
and also about how Charlie's bike can... I lean in. What? Baby? What baby? He looks at me. Mommy's baby. You mean you? No. He gives me his, this daddy is nutty look. A new baby. Her tummy. I felt it. Her new baby? The baby's coming soon. I have to help with it. I sigh. Katie's right. Never a dull moment. At the batting cages near Teterboro, I confide in Sam that Bob M. advised I transfer out of LaGuardia. He takes a few practice swings, then nods. I know it sucks to hear, dude, but maybe he's doing you a big solid. It could be best. Trying a new venue. Hell, at least you live here. Towers all over the damn place. MacArthur, Farmingdale, Westchester, my dump, plenty more. You know, he smirks, and there's always John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Sam knows the world looks at La Garbage as JFK's little brother, the old-school domestic dump that can't handle the big wide bodies, the long halls, the internationals, while JFK is celebrated as the Ellis Island of the 21st century. But the dirty little secret is we LGA controllers look down at Kennedy Cruz. Our longest runway is 7,003 feet, and theirs is 14,511 feet. Working LaGuardia is like working an aircraft carrier in a hurricane. If I'm to take a demotion, I like to go further away than nine miles down the Van Wyck Expressway. But, as always, my movements are tied to Ben. Wherever the court says he will live is exactly where I will live. I've just used up my newly pumped up muscles to knock the crap out of about 50 balls, and my t-shirt is stuck to my back. There's only one la garbage, I reply. Sam swings. That's, there's an old joke about this French guy, Pierre Lafitte. I know. I think I told it to you. Well, then you remember the punchline. You suck just one cock, and guess what people call you? He puts down the bat. That's you, man. All those LaGuardia people remember that one fuck-up. So maybe it's time for new faces. I change the subject to his impending stand-up gig. Once I had such pride in being among the very best at the most demanding airport on the planet. Now I've stopped calculating losses. We're back at the VA hospital in Fort Hamilton, Brooklyn. I drove here with Ben because things, as they say, have turned for the worse. Of course, betting against Tom Mullen Sr. has never been a lucrative undertaking. We talk in a lounge with a sweeping view of New York Harbor. My father is frailer and less angry, finally, now that he's 75. Clearly, the last months have taken a toll. Could he actually be frightened in a way he never was in Da Nang or a thousand smoking tenements? The powerful and once violent physique is now hunched, and nubs of bones protrude where they never protruded before. Shoulders, chest, wrists. Undoubtedly, he still believes he could climb an FDNY ladder while carrying a fully grown adult, let alone Shiana Wilkins. What I don't know is even he 
is recognizing limitations. He plays with Ben on the cheap, government-issued sofa. Amazingly, he's good with the boy, who giggles uncontrollably. Who knew my father had a way with kids? He asks me fact-based questions about my situation. The judge's name. What's my lawyer saying? That's uh, the, the court on Sudfin, am I right? And he recalls a courthouse fire he once fought. He points at my eye. How'd you get that mouse? Sparring. I've taken up boxing. Good. Toughens you up. I don't bother explaining how Judge Westfall has toughened me far beyond Hugo Concepcion's abilities. He downplays his own condition. He's been in tough spots before. I supply the word quadruple when he falters. I've had decades to hold him up to the light from every possible angle. By now, I've let go of most of it. I'm sick of wondering if he's a product of nature or nurture. We all know how, in March 1965, he landed with the first major American combat units in Vietnam. And none of us living in that tiny row house can really imagine what it felt like running into burning buildings, let alone running back in again and again. But in thousands of ways, we've all stormed ashore as well. I've dissected all there is to dissect. It'll be a real tough thing if they take away your son, he says unexpectedly. I see there's no bitter irony behind his remark. In fact, he uses the word son as if it comes naturally to him. Fathers and sons. Ben's on his knees near the windowsill, staring at the Verrazano Narrows Bridge. He points to a sailboat off Coney Island. Colors, numbers, letters, they all come together. He observes and recites at once. One red sail, two yellow, one says USA. My father scratches at the hospital bracelet. You the one fell in that time uh, off the uh, catamaran? I shrug. Could have been anyone. I know to him kids can be separated if you try hard enough, though they're easier to maneuver as a clump. Herd them close so they stick. Counting crew-cutted and pigtailed heads on the beach at Rockaway, standing on the boardwalk on a Sunday in an FDNY shirt, his dark eyes taking inventory while slamming the wood-paneled tailgate shut on the station wagon. Saddle up, troops. We're moving out. Flicking ashes out the vent window, treating traffic on Cross Bay Boulevard as if it formed just to thwart him. Mercury embossed in chromium script on top of the wood paneling. Mercury. A glob breaks off, and you corral it back into the mass. Fathers and sons, I keep thinking. And I recall the time he told Katie she was his favorite son. Such moments were the true mile markers, as he lived a separate and clearly happier life in the nuthouse, which is where he was when Lizzie died. In her one and only searing outburst, my mother shouted at him that he was there to save Shiana Wilkins, but he was nowhere to be found when Elizabeth Mullen died. I was lying flat on my belly in the upstairs hallway and heard it all, including his silence. Now I watch him patty cake with Ben. The lounge smells of iodine and spinach. 
I look at them and wonder just how many lives are really issued within the one life. We bought Grandpa's black robe, Ben says. Now the iodine's passed, and it's all spinach. I think that was more your battleship gray, buddy. No, it was black, he said, stiffening. My father stands. Black schmack. You know, Ben breaks into giggles. The old man puts out a liver-spotted hand for the boy, and the tattered robe flaps open, very nearly exposing him. I move with precision and speed and swoop down to block Ben's view. The elevator takes forever. And I stare at those sailboats, too, thinking my father had not one but six golden chances of a lifetime. I'm scared, more scared than I've ever been. I want nothing more than just to be there for Ben, and with Ben. Instead, New York State will decide if I'm fit to raise this child. If not, we'll start new and separate lives. They'll call it joint custody, but of course there's no such thing. It's a fraction of a childhood, a decimal. Soon, I may be joining that vilest subspecies of Asholus americanus, a weekend dad. Silent trips to salad bars and chain restaurants, awkward Sunday night drop-offs, quick exchanges at the door about checks, floating as I utter unreal lines to him. We won on the karate, but I'm with her on this tattoo thing, buddy. Well, it's cool with me if you're getting sick of the place. Next time, we'll do Epcot. This is Cheryl. I've been telling her all about you. You haven't said a word for more than an hour, buddy. I'm on the New Jersey Turnpike at the Molly Pitcher Rest Stop, the Czech engine light glowing since Staten Island. As instructed, I've brought $500 in small bills, and I've also purchased one plain cheeseburger, large fries, and a Fanta. I wait. Someone I implicitly trust suggested I contact this person. He's supposedly an expert on custody issues, and he only offers advice off the record for cash. And now here he is sitting across from me in jeans and a ripped sweatshirt. He counts the bills. Cheese, nothing else, right? I nod. I'm Mike Mullen. He digs in. I know. As per the instructions, I update him on the law guardian and court-appointed shrink. Then I ask for guidance. Eeyore, huh? He swallows more fries. See, they're in the underbelly of this corrupt system. Custody's an industry, a trillion-dollar industry. Even if all the judges were honest, which they're not. All these parasites, lawyers, investigators, psychologists, accountants, they make money off misery, and they're corrupt to boot. He asks if her attorney is from Queens. I say yes. What about my lawyer? She's Manhattan-based. He frowns. This guardian of Ben's and this Eeyore, they're probably bought and paid for. If I were you, I'd play it dumb with them. Don't reveal too much. Act like a bumpkin. I ask him what else I should do. You've got a long-term problem. Now he shakes his head, gobbling his fries nine or ten at a time, like a video of a potato running through a grater backward. 
Queens County. That's the most corrupt custody court I know. Queens sucks. Finally, he stops eating. You better prepare for the worst. I want to throw up. Acting like a bumpkin with Eeyore doesn't help. For a shrink, he's quite aggressive. Of course, he doesn't cultivate patience of his own since the county courts hand them to him. He's obsessed with the supervised visitation period. Why did I go along with eavesdropping on her with Ben in public places? Eavesdropping? Uh, Judge Westfall decreed visitations were to be supervised. You know, because of the abduction business. Yes, but truthfully, did you enjoy seeing her humiliated? Later, he mumbles something about the child's best interests, the secret password among those sucking at courthouse tits. And I note that I also want what's best for Ben. He stares and says, well, she's married and having a baby, and they're buying, not renting, a house, and she'll be home with the children. Doesn't that sound like a more stable life for Benjamin? No, I say. And why not? It's not about mortgages, I say, or babysitting. It's about who puts Ben's interests first. Always. He mumbles, we're out of time. And Leon the parrot finally speaks. Time! Don't forget, this guy Hugo, he's got a real reach advantage. You're going to stay the fuck inside on that bastard. Work the body. This advice is not from Archie. It's from Paco. It's a Friday evening at Ring of Fire, and once more, I'm facing off in a three-round battle with Hugo Concepcion. We're in the last of four fights again. The small place is packed, and the hot lights have me lightly sweating as soon as the robe comes off. Archie's strong knuckles rub my shoulders, and she continually whispers, even when I'm not listening. It feels like she put too much Vaseline on my face. Ever since the Jersey Turnpike Man, I'm mad at the universe. Tonight, I fight back. In the black trunks from South Beach, Florida, Hugo Concepcion! I move continuously, as if standing still makes me a target. In the green trunks from Queens, New York! At this, the crowd erupts, but of course, they do the same for anyone from this borough, including hometown heroes like Donald Trump, Carl Icahn, Bernie Madoff, John Gotti, Michael Mullen! Hugo and I stare at each other in the center of the ring. At first glance, he looks the same. But while I've lost weight and toned up quite a bit since our last dance, I notice he's gone in the other direction and packed on more pounds. His arms and legs are no longer as defined, and there's a soft roll spilling over the waistband of his trunks. The ref finishes his bit, and we both smack gloves a little harder than necessary. In the seconds before the bell, I look around and see lots of strangers, including the odd presence of women other than Archie within these dirty walls. For some reason, many of these strangers are yelling at me, though I have no idea what they're conveying. As much as anything, they're probably reacting, positively and negatively, to the large shamrock Archie had them sew on the left leg of my emerald trunks. Now we're off, 
and both of us come out quickly and aggressively. We're headhunting with jabs, though very few land on either side. I'm waiting, waiting, waiting. I want revenge for that headshot last year, and I'm determined to patiently get it. At this point, it's all straight rights and lefts. He cuffs me on the shoulder, and I do the same. And then we get in close, and I drive a short, hard right into his navel, and I hear him grunt. All those hours cranking out bicep curls with old-school metal dumbbells has sharpened my punches. The round seems to drag on forever. I jab, jab, jab his nose, and then finally I feel it coming. His entire body dips to the left as he winds up, and I move in quickly and land a hard right to the side of his head. Cold or hot, revenge is mine, and it's sweet as I watch Hugo stagger backwards, and for a moment, I think he may even drop. But those heavy legs keep him up, even moving in reverse. Now it's my turn. I feel it. I know it. I stalk him back to the ropes, fake another right to the head, and both his hands foolishly come up high for protection. It's exactly what I want. So perfect, it's almost scary. And I drive four unanswered punches, left, right, left, right, into his gut, my elbows moving like pistons. Hugo emits an animalistic sound, but it's not the oof cartoonists love to invoke. Chuff, chuff, chuff. Somehow, through all the noise, I hear Archie yelling, that's it, boy! The bell clangs, and I watch Hugo walk to his corner with his right forearm pressed against his lower abdomen. Those strong, dark hands rub my shoulders, back, upper arms, as I drink and spit. There's more noise than ever, but I'm focused, like on a busy Thursday at LGA, so all those bleeding voices fade away as I listen only to Archie. But for once, I disagree. He don't like those wallops inside the nose. Keep doing that, boy. Some spot. Uh Uh-uh. I accept the newly rinsed mouthpiece. He don't like body shots, hitting him in the belly. Surprisingly, Archie doesn't argue, and now it's moot because she's pushing me off the stool even as the bell rings. I come out more cautiously this time, and so does Hugo. But there's a difference. I'm hunting, and he's prey. We've never exchanged a word in the ring, but it's uncanny how two fighters can read each other's minds. We both know this brawl is entirely different than Concepcion Mullen 2015. It's my fight to lose, and I'm sick of losing. As we close in, I start snapping jabs at his head, partly to throw him off balance and partly to bring those arms up high again. He's throwing jabs as well. The most miss and the ones that don't have lost some sting. I'm already wearing him down. But once again, Hubris makes an appearance. Just as I launch a right jab, my left drops ever so slightly, enough for him to send a sharp right cross to my eyebrow. It stings like hell, and I backpedal, concerned he may have opened a cut. Later I will see that the skin opened and folded back onto itself like a tightly rolled empanada. I swat at my left eye with the back of my glove and see no blood, so I'm ready to resume. And here comes Hugo. It's what I've been waiting for. He's coming in at me too quickly and far too awkwardly, almost tripping over his own feet. 
I stepped to the side and Faker left to his head, and sure enough, not just one but both arms come up again, and clearly he's lost his timing. My opening is here and I take it, planting my front foot and using my upper body, driving that Connecticut energy all the way up from my hip to my torso to my shoulder to my gloved fist. I drive a hard right hook deep into his navel, perhaps the hardest punch I've ever thrown at someone. So hard, he spits his mouthpiece clear over my shoulder so it skips across the ring. I don't know how I can hear skipping above all the shouting. Perhaps I imagined it. But then, all my senses have never been so acute. I hear Hugo's moan, smell his sweat, see his eyes narrow. His mouth forms an oval, but I'm already following up, pivoting inside to plow another hook, this one a left, hard and fast into his liver. Actually, it's in the area of where his liver should be, but from the pain instantly registering on Hugo's face, I'm almost certain my gloved knuckles are compressing that delicate organ. My last punch, the last punch of the fight, is a right uppercut I bury in the same spot as his waistband. Chuff! I'm ready to throw a fourth punch in this combination, but as I draw back my left, I feel hands on my shoulder, and I turn and suddenly remember there's a ref in here with us as well. I look to Hugo, but he's fallen onto his right knee, and amidst the noise, we all watch as he slowly slumps face down, his forehead barely touching the canvas, both arms wrapped around his middle. Archie is screaming, screaming for me to hit the neutral corner, even though we know this ref can count to 10 or even 20. Still, I move. Already I realize that was the best series of punches I've ever thrown in the ring. The best I ever will throw. Every torque and twist and turn executed perfectly. And even as it was happening, somehow I knew this was a once-only moment, the type that recedes even as it occurs. I only wish it was Eeyore sucking that canvas. And it's over. Hugo has stumbled to his shaky feet, his breathing labored. I approach him as we awkwardly throw our arms around each other's shoulders, and the crowd cheers even louder than during the knockout, which is saying something. The Borough of Queens, home of good sportsmanship. Ha! He manages a tight smile and shakes his head while muttering something about intestino. Then the ref holds up my arm and I hear, Michael Marlin! Victory, elusive and long overdue. I'll take it, and I'll arise from this fiery basement a winner. Now I'm sitting on the training table in Archie's office, sans shoes and socks and that irritating cup, in just the shamrocked shorts, waiting for her to return with fresh towels. The gloves and wraps are off, and I feel a trickle of sweat on my forehead, and when I touch it, I recoil. The adrenaline completely masked the pain of the bruise forming over my left eyebrow. But I feel it now. The door opens, and Archie tosses me the towels, but doesn't step in. Instead, she barks, Pretty lady out there, what the hell she want with you? So through the door steps Gina. And pretty isn't even the word. Compared to me, she's bundled up, jeans and pink sneakers, and a top under a hoodie. For some reason, it occurs to me that when we first met, 
I was fully dressed, and most of her torso was exposed. Now it's reversed. Hey, champ, I'm a day early for the big date. I came for an autograph. I'm thrilled to see her, more thrilled than I ever thought I could be. I know I'm smiling because my lips, slightly swollen from the mouthpiece and a few straight rights courtesy of Mr. Concepcion, sting as those many tiny muscles express joy. Other emotions run alongside in an effort to keep up. Surprise, confusion, awkwardness over my bare torso. You know, get it quick. Hanging up the gloves, going out on top. She moves to the table, leaning in next to me. I never saw a boxing fight before. I'm still smiling. Boxing fight. God, she's cute. You saw the whole thing? You bet. You look pretty good out there. Her eyebrows rise. Didn't know you were so built there, Mullen. Not bad. Cute took us in those green shorts. How do you hear about this? Duh. I googled your name the other night. I get this weird ring of fire sight with those lame-ass flames. I figure it's the wrong mullen, but then it's like the pride of LaGuardia? She googled me? Oh, well, I wish I'd known you were... I mean, I'm really glad you came. I hope... I hope... You know, well... Well, I'm glad I won anyway. I suddenly stare at her. What would you have done if I'd lost? Seriously? I'd be over at Hugo's room right now. She shakes her head, but she's laughing. Are you really this screwed up? I mean, really? You're not doing some bumbling act. You know, I laugh too. <laughs> no, I'm the real deal. A genuine shithead. Gina sighs. God, I've got to do everything myself. And she reaches over and gently touches my bruised eyebrow. Involuntarily, I pull back slightly. That hurt? Nah. Well, a little. She rummages through her bag, the only refuge of femininity in this place. I didn't see you out there. You have a good seat? Good enough. Saw every damn punch. I liked it a lot more when you punched him than the other way around. I was sitting with Brendan O'Malley, a big fan of yours. Jesus! I cry. She dabs at my bruise with a soft towel, and the sensation is the very definition of bittersweet. He's like a hundred years old. Did he tell you he fought in Sunnyside Gardens, same card as Sugar Ray Robinson? She's holding what she wanted in that bag, but isn't showing it. Yep, I didn't know what the heck a card was, or who Sugar Ray was. He was very patient with me. I told him we're old friends and I came to see you. Then, right before you got hit, he says, he'll be socking your man in the left eye now. And bam, that's what happened. Then later he says, right before it, he turns to me, your man will be socking him in the bread basket right about now. And then, boom! You hit the guy in the stomach. I said to Brendan, how do you know that? He said, he's been watching you. He said, you're not much of a fighter, really, but you're a hell of a nice guy. And there's that smile. I told him I knew that part. He said it just like I rehearsed him. 
Gina slides closer to me than ever. I can feel her hoodie against my bare torso as she looks over the bruise and keeps chatting. See how many tats he's got? More than pink. I asked him if he had so much ink because he's a millennial, but he didn't get the joke. He said one was his Navy ship. She stops and looks into my eyes, but from a closer distance than we've ever shared. Want to hear something funny? I nod. After you won, he said to me, Your boyfriend did it, love. And I said, You weren't my boyfriend. And he started laughing and coughing. You know, with the missing teeth and everything. He's a cute old guy. He should be selling Lucky Charms. Yeah. So anyway, know what he said? He said, He's your boyfriend, love. No doubt about that. And so I asked why. And he said, It was from the way I looked at you during the fight. And I asked him, You mean because I cheered when Mike hit the other guy? And he said, No, love. The way you looked when the other guy hit him. And I wonder, I wonder how can it be my heart is beating harder now, sitting on a massage table with no danger in sight? A half hour ago, a large, strong man was trying everything he could to beat me senseless. And I was calling on fight-or-flight reflexes, assembly-lined to me across millennia from cavemen. But at no time when Hugo stared at me over his gloves did my heart beat like it's beating now. Once more, words fail. She dabs again at my eyebrow with a fresh towel. And finally, I ask what she's applying to the wound. Gina seems hesitant, but she says, I know it's the macho boxing place, but it's best for a bruise, so don't give me a hard time. It's diaper cream. I laugh and shake my head. Jesus! She laughs too. You're trying to get me killed? Those guys out there, you have any idea? They see diaper cream on a ring wound? You'll find me in the dumpster. It's good stuff. I gently steady her wrist as she applies more cream. One question. A and D? She seems startled. What? You know, I think it's called A plus D, the, the, the brand. I've always used A and D. Gina sort of slumps against the desk I'm facing. Wow. What? I ask. She's doing that thing again of staring at me. Seconds pass. You have no idea, do you? You really are clueless. She takes a deep intake of oxygen. You are the hottest man I've ever met in my life because of this damn cream. Gina holds up the tube and I see the brand. It's freaking A&D and you have no clue how hot you are. None. A guy who knows from diaper creams. I have dreamed and dreamed about a man like you. Someone Ashley... She abruptly stops. Well, I decide maybe words failing is not the worst thing and slide down off the table. My arms are around her at last, and as we kiss, I feel various parts of our bodies touching. Jeans to bare thighs, hoodie to chest hair, 
the way waves lap at countless dunes before regrouping, only to come in and lap again and again. I don't want the kiss to end. For the second time tonight, I'm close enough to hear someone moan. Only this time, I moan in response. Finally, we separate, and I stare into those eyes. Gina smiles and shakes her brown hair. It's about time. Romantical, indeed. I kiss her again, and her hand moves across my bare chest as she breathes deeply. I came by subway. You know I don't have a car, right? I believe you've ridden in my beat-up wagon. It's very loved. We call it lovey. She nods and brushes a sweaty lock of hair away from my eyebrow. Why, yes, I'd be happy to accept a ride, Michael. Thank you for offering. My wheels are spinning. Where's Ashley tonight? My mom. She took her to my sister's for the weekend, out in Jersey. They've got little kids. It's a play date. She pauses. Where's Benji? I smile. With my sister Katie, in the city. They're having a play date, too. Gina laughs. Only this time, it's a low and sensuous laugh I've never heard before. And now I'm concerned my reaction might be visible in the vicinity of the shamrock. Her smile is downright lecherous as she says, You know, I'm going to let you drive me home. And then, if you work it right, you could maybe have a play date too. An adult play date. She grabs me by my bicep and pulls me to her as she bites her lip and then whispers, Don't shower now. Just get dressed. I want to smell you like this. It may very well be less than a minute later that we open the door to leave. I grab my oversized gym bag and lead the way as we hustle to the stairway. And then I pull up short, because we're blocked by Archie and Brendan O'Malley, who obviously have been waiting for us. They stare at me, and Brendan breaks into crude laughter. Told ya! He slaps Archie's muscular yet feminine arm. My manager-slash-trainer shakes her head. She'd do hell of a lot better than him. Hell of a lot. Damn dick-headed boy. Tell him to hit him in the, in the beak, not the gizzard. Dick-headed. As we climb out of the ring of fire, Gina says, Come on, guys. You know he's not really a fighter.